Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. Happy Wednesday. Happy hump day. Happy day before Thursday. It's also Harmony Wednesday. Uh, and look, we have uh, some fill-ins for Pastor Bobby and Pastor Anthony. We've given them the week off. Uh, some friends of mine from Idaho are actually in town. They're hosting a conference uh, here. Uh, they do a podcast called Cross Politics. They'll be joining us in mass here for the Harmony segment in the second half of the show. Uh, but before we get to Harmony and our discussion about how we get to better harmony in the world, uh, we're going to talk about some of the disharmony going on in the sports world and the political world. And we'll start by talking with uh, Greg Couch uh, out of Chicago, who's a big Notre Dame follower and fan. Greg's written a piece about Brian Kelly. Uh, then we'll roll out to Los Angeles and bring in our friend Steve Kim, my Asian brother from another mother. Uh, and we'll talk some more about Brian Kelly and Oscar De La Hoya. You guys know Steve Kim's a boxing writer. Professor Delano, Professor D will be here. He's written a brilliant piece, an update of the Willie Lynch letter, uh, Richard, the Richard Snip letter, or as Uncle Jimmy likes to call him, the Dick Snip letter. Uh, we'll get into that uh, a little later in the show, but we'll first... He made oh, by myself. Yeah. Oh, and first, uh, there will be no fire starter at the top of the show. You're going to have to stick around and wait until the end of the show. I'll end the show with a fire starter talking about why R.I.P. is R.I.P. in America. You got to stick around. You got to hear this. I'm going to end the show with something that's going to ignite your brain, Jim. Give you something to think about. You'll be tossing and turning about what I say at the end of the show uh, throughout the night. So you're going to start the fire after the fire trucks leave. Yes. Yes. Yes, I am. And I just want everybody to blaze on into the night. But let's first roll out uh, to Greg Couch and and. Let's I want to show you this clip. I know we're a little late with this. This happened Saturday night or Sunday night. I'm sorry when Notre Dame played Florida State, uh, but it was so fascinating. and So interesting. I did want to talk about it at some point this week. And Greg wrote a column about uh, Brian Kelly and his postgame comments after Notre Dame survived overtime and beat Florida State. But let's take a look. Let's give you a little background so you can understand this in context. But here's what Brian Kelly had to say. Uh, to an ABC reporter after Notre Dame won the game. Brian, this game had it all. Yeah. What did you think of your team's ability to withstand Florida State's impressive comeback? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of uh, execution. Maybe, maybe our entire team needs to be executed after tonight. I mean, it, we just didn't execute very well. And <laughs> so Brian Kelly cracks a relatively harmless joke He's basically mimicking Jim. I don't know. You remember the coach John McKay used to co coach the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? I think even before Doug Williams got there, mm -hmm. uh, the expansion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I think John McKay coached the USC as well. Uh, but it, he used to always crack jokes, and he cracked a joke about executing his entire team. And Brian Kelly's as old as me, so he made a reference to it. And, of course, uh, social media reacted, and the next thing you know, there were stories everywhere, and Brian Kelly's cracked a joke, and oh my God, and, 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 and a decade ago, a kid died on the team, or an equipment man, and this is terrible. 
Did he single out the black players? Huh? Did he single out the black players? No, he did not. Did he single out the white players? No. So what did he say wrong? That he said he cracked a joke on national TV, Jim. You can't do that. That joke is about the equivalent of, that's the equivalent of letting the inmates run the asylum. They made a big deal about that. I think the former owner of the Texans made that comment. Anyway, Greg has covered Notre Dame forever and had an interesting take on it. Greg, what's your take on Brian Kelly's very, very offensive joke about executing his team? Well, the first take is that Brian Kelly's not a comedian, right? He botched the joke, and it was one of those things where someone says a joke, and it's they do it so poorly that you're uncomfortable listening to it and waiting for the moment to end. But the bigger deal is that it was kind of a creepy reaction that the media had to to it. To blow that up so that it's the lead story on ESPN.com, Chris Fowler comes on and says uh, on Twitter and says, uh, what do we think about uh, Brian Kelly's attempted at humor? It's not going to work in 2021 or something along those lines. And I'm thinking, what do we think? I mean, I think Twitter has become Big Brother. We'll, we'll call it Big Twitter. It's a memory of 1984 because the media are sitting around watching Twitter, watching to see what's trending. And as soon as something trends, that's what they decide they're supposed to think, they're supposed to feel and, and supposed to write about. And it's just, it's, it's a creepy thing because the media are supposed to be thinking independent thoughts and, and coming up with their own shoe leather reporting and deciding judgment, what, you know, what readers wanna read. But instead, we're, we're just getting Twitter to say it. And you look at the stories, the Washington Post said it created a firestorm on Twitter and other people said it went viral on social media and uh, you know, ESPN.com said the same kind of thing. That was what they chose to be the defining moment as to whether they should write about it or not. That, that was the evidence they gave that it was a good story. You know, it was an important story because it was a big deal on social media. So, you know, John, uh, John McKay made the joke a long time ago when they said, what do you think of your team's execution? He said, I'm in favor of it. You know, that was funny. And Brian Kelly got it wrong. You know, it's just a, it's, all it is is a stupid one-liner that he botched. It's no story. No one cared. No one was offended. But once Twitter got involved, you know, the media were on their knees bowing at the altar of Twitter. And so they jumped all over and turned it into a big national blow-up story. Greg, you said something that I, I, I want to slightly push back or let you clarify, just you and I talking as journalists. You said there are people that decide, or used to decide what the readers want to read. And actually to me, a journalist and what journalism used to do is we would actually make decisions about what they need to read, what information do they need, what should be the priority, what should be the focus. And it's just like, you don't want to say it in a condescending way, but it is actual. We're supposed to be trained journalists like you and Jim are parents and you have kids. And because of all your experience, life experience, and hopefully some training, books you've read, classes, you give kids what they need, not what they want. And that's how you develop them into properly function, functioning human beings, sophisticated <laughs> human beings, so that they can make better decisions. We have resorted to, and that's what social media is about. Let's just give people what they want. And so we just serve them ice cream all day and fake controversies to tug at their emotions. And, and we demonize people, a Brian Kelly for an innocent joke, the police, 
for making mistakes that anybody that's constantly in tough, pressurized situations, 365 days a year, the police are going to make some mistakes. And it's improper, I think, to demonize them and to cast anything, any mistake they make in the worst light possible. We used to be better than that. And, 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 and you make the point of, of shoe leather. This is where I will, I guess, give the media somewhat of a break. Our business model fell so far apart that we don't even, maybe they just don't have the staff to actually go out into the world and do reporting. And we all stupidly think, hey, let's just sit on Twitter and let Twitter do the reporting for us or point us the direction we should look. Anyway, just as a journalist, respond to some of that in, in terms of not what they want, give them what they need. You're right, okay? If I said that, you know, I'm wrong. But the, it is about shoe leather reporting. It's about instincts, right? I remember when the Cubs had a ticket scalping operation going, and I was a columnist in Chicago at the Chicago Sun-Times, and the Cubs denied owning this building, that, that uh, operation that they were running. And so I walked over to Wrigleyville, Wrigleyville, the neighborhood around Wrigley Field, and I looked around and I remembered what company makes the signs that Wrigley Field uses, the Cubs use at Wrigley Field. And I went over there and I went to the guy's shop and I said, did you make that sign on Wrigley Field premium tickets? And he said, yeah, I did. And I said, who paid for it? And he goes, what do you mean by that? And I said, who paid you for the sign? And he pulls out a big box and he shows me this check and it says in the upper left-hand corner, Chicago National League Ball Club. The Cubs denied that they even had anything to do with that operation and yet they're paying the bills. So, you know, th this is a hustle and, and reporting thing that used to happen. And maybe you're right about the finances, but I actually blame the media for that too, to be honest with you, because if the reporters had been doing the shoe leather work and giving readers what they needed and what they should want to, to, to read all along, if they'd have done the reporting in the first place, then, you know, maybe we wouldn't have watched the model of journalism shrink to, to just being down to Twitter. You know, actually this has happened a long time ago too. You'll probably identify with this. Um, when I was a columnist in Chicago, a lot of times people would just listen to talk radio. You'd listen to some idiot on the, you know, Joe from Chicago thinks that uh, Jay Cutler should be fired. And uh, Bill from Vernon Hills thinks the same thing. And suddenly it's, oh, there's a column idea. They're going crazy on talk radio about this. So Twitter's kind of just blown that up and made it a national uh, model. Uh, but it's not really reporting. It's not really thinking. It's just, you know, what do people want to talk about? What's the buzz and pretending that that's really what matters. It's not really what matters. It's, you know, the, the instincts and the journalism uh, skills that you get in school, these things actually do matter. So, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, you're right. It's not about giving readers what they want so much as what they need. But, but Greg, you know, one thing you criticize me for, and I'm not being defensive about it, perhaps it's fair, uh, but I hear a little of this too, or I see some of this in terms of editors are sitting in these media outlets, ESPN and, and uh, what, Fox, Fox News, MSNBC, wherever, New York Times, and <clears throat> I have a cynical view of them because I think they've become very cynical in terms of, well, it doesn't really matter anymore. The truth is irrelevant. And you know what, they're not paying me enough 
to even be bothered with the truth, to even put up with the backlash I may get over social media for expressing opinion or writing a story that doesn't con uh, coincide with whatever the group think is over Twitter. And that's what I thought one of your really brilliant points is the, the person or Fowler saying that, you know, what do we think of this? And, and I thought that was a brilliant point. Like, hey man, he's basically saying, yeah, let's do group think. Let's crowdsource my opinion on this rather than Chris Fowler's, you know, be, Chris Fowler knows Brian Kelly. He follows college football. He should be very aware of John McKay and the joke that uh, Brian Kelly was trying to crack. And so as a leader, Chris Fowler should have been tweeting out, you know what, Brian Kelly did nothing wrong here, and any of you that have a problem and are making a big deal of this are wrong. The guy slightly botched an old joke, but instead, Chris Fowler said, let me stick my finger in the hair, in the air, which way is the Twitter wind blowing? Yeah. And, and, and now I'm back to agreeing with you, this is just, pure laziness and and it's laziness and cowardice mixed together and instead of Chris Fowler saying the right thing this is stupid he did nothing wrong Chris Fowler bowed to the Twitter gods what right. do we think are we upset about this I, you make an excellent point well, again, I just was saying about this is, reminds me of the book 1984 when he says, what do we think? Isn't groupthink? Wasn't that something that came out in that book 1984 by George Orwell? Yeah. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about here. And the media are just sitting there staring at the at the computers to see what's trending. They're waiting to see what Twitter is telling them to think. They're waiting to think, see what Twitter is telling them to believe and to write about. So you're right. Fowler. I mean, maybe he's just he's just in fact, Fowler mentioned the McKay joke in his tweet. So he, he was aware of it. And he, and he just said, maybe, you know, this is not going to work in 2021. You're right. He should have stood up and just said, look, it's a stupid joke. He botched it a little bit. If you want to make fun of him for botching a joke, that's fine. But this is not a big deal. And let's not just bow down to the Twitter. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so. But that's what we get. That's what the, all the media are doing, just sitting there staring and waiting instead of using their instincts, instead of using their education. There's no romance to the whole idea of that in journalism anymore. So the editors are just staring at computer boxes all day long. It really is creepy. Like I said, it's just like 1984. I, I, I think, and Greg, we got to keep it moving. Uh, mm -hmm. We're going to uh, go out to Steve Kim in, in L.A., but... Thank you so much. Terrific column. It, it ended on a somewhat positive note because there's a long, Jim, there's a longtime sports writer, uh, Jeff Goodman, that made the point, he made the point me and Greg were making, like, hey man, what are we doing here? I, I missed the old days when news was news, was actual news. And it wasn't some Twitter algorithm that define what news is for us. And th that's the point I keep making and have been hammering for years is that uh, Twitter's an algorithm. There are people in Silicon Valley that can determine and are determining, you should be interested in this. You should be outraged by this. You should feel this way about this situation. And anybody like me or Greg or anybody that 
stands up and says, hey, what you're feeling is stupid and Twitter's convincing you to do that, we're the bad people. We're racist, we're sellouts, we're uh, contrarians, mm -hmm. uh, we're a group of idiots. But I'm not that stupid. Look how good I look right now. I mean, are you looking at this, Jim? Do you see how good I look? Oh, I'm still stuck on the fact that you're saying stupid, but go ahead, I got you. Do, do you see how good I, I'm serious? This, this, this renaissance of beauty that you're seeing overtake me. It's because of the TV. No, it's because of my friends at Built Bar. Jim, you've seen me come in here for months. So why is your Built Bars making you look better than mine? Huh? Why are your Built Bars making you look better? Because I got more weight to lose, and Built Bars helping me lose weight. They're low in uh, sugars and calories, and now, Jim, as you know, and I both know, when I got into work today, Hey, man. Peanut butter brownie. Bill Bard has stepped their game up. Yeah. Man. The peanut butter yeah. brownie is in the house. Oh, my and God. Oh, I see God. you on that cookie dough. Hey, man, yeah. try that for real. Yeah, that cookie. <laughs> no, dude, real. I've fallen in love with the peanut butter brownie. Oh, my God. Had them today before the show. Uh, they also have now some uh, uh, cookie dough chunk, raspberry cheesecake. Well, somebody don't get me that raspberry cheesecake in here, we're going to have a misunderstanding. It's a new product, Jim. Just like their other protein bars, it's full of flavor. They are once again low in protein, coming in at 10 grams. Uh, and they are grain-free, dairy-free, and gluten-free. They pack enough energy to help boost you along your busy day. Just when I thought I had these guys figured out, Jim, they yeah. switched the game up on me and drop this peanut butter brownie on me, and I'm dropping this peanut butter brownie on y'all. Go to Built.com and use the promo code FEARLESS to save 15% off your first order. Use the promo code FEARLESS for 15% off at Built.com. Peanut butter brownie. Can't wait. No guilt. That's what I leave. No guilt. <laughs> Welcome back. Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Uncle Jimmy, it's time to roll out to Los Angeles and bring in my brother from an Asian mother, Steve Kim. My guy, Steve Dim. Steve, Steve Kim. Steve Dim. I called him Steve Kerr last week. It's Steve Kim. Well, you heard what I called him last week, too. <laughs> I don't, Steve, are you there? Can we bring I, Steve in? Guys, how you doing? Yeah. What's up with you, man? Uh, <laughs> Uncle Jimmy... Call, is calling you Steve Dim. I think he's trying to make a joke about your intelligence. I actually find you, you know, halfway mediocre intelligence level. Oh, I like Steve Dim. <laughs> yeah, you do? Yeah, I like him. But, but I tell you what, I like, I like him a lot better on our show. I like him a lot better on our show than I like him there with uh, that Damani Jones. Damani <laughs> <laughs> Jones. I like him a lot better. This is not Pablo Torre. This is Steve Kim. Don't 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 do that, Jim. You're gonna get me in trouble. I got in trouble. I I got in trouble for calling him Steve Kerr last week. Well, Ooh. he got he called me Twan from Living Color last week. We <laughs> even there. <laughs> uh, Steve, uh, you heard me and Greg talking about Brian Kelly uh, previously. I, I I just I think Brian Kelly. And what happened there is an example of, of why I can't stand the media. It's dictated to by Twitter. It's why I can't stand Twitter. Twitter is the editor for most of the media. 
Brian Kelly cracked an innocent joke, harmless joke. I'm not even sure if he really even botched the joke other than, you know, people didn't get it. And, and now they try to turn it into some big deal. And as I said to Greg, Chris Fowler being a coward and lazy rather than just saying, look, the guy did nothing wrong. He threw gas on the fire. Right. This is, again, trying to appease the woke mob. And the phrase that I hate in today's journalism or in social media is not only just getting ahead of the story, but also being on the right side of history instead of just really being on the right side of common sense. Look, it was a brilliant game. Notre Dame nearly blew it in the fourth quarter. I think it was a little bit angry. Brian Kelly is one of the last of the real old school coaches. He will actually get in guys' faces. He will discipline people. And he gets very, very heated. And he was probably feeling a certain type of emotion and relief. He wanted to kind of lighten the mood. But I feel as though guys like Chris Fowler believe that there's a pressure to be on a certain side and to almost scold people who aren't just completely politically correct in this box. So my, my view is it's a funny thing that happened. It's only sports. It's not that important. I actually tweeted out, I don't know who the real executioner is now, Brian Kelly or Bernard Hopkins. But like, look, does it matter that Brian Kelly has someone on his body count, that young man that was a Notre Dame staffer that was sent to his death on that windy day? Yes, and that was brought up. But I don't think he meant any harm by it. Look, coaches by nature are going to be very tough, at least the real ones that aren't players' coaches. Brian Kelly felt as though he was sending a message to his players that we won, but it's not acceptable. That's what the good coaches do. And Brian Kelly, certainly, given his track record at Notre Dame, I believe is an elite coach. But, yes, every time something like this happens, there's a group of mainstream media, especially the A-listers at certain networks, they almost feel it's their duty to scold those people in mass, uh, a certain uniformity of thought, as soon as it happens to, again, be on the right side of history. Well, and don't you think, to some degree, it's to be on the right side of their paycheck? That they, have, they, they just want to keep the woke mob off of them. They want to be uh, the last guy feeding the alligator. And eventually, when they run out of food, that alligator is going to eat them. But they just want to be the last guy eaten by the alligator. Uh, and so Chris Fowler and, you know, it's, you brought it up. And look, I, I like Kirk Herbstreit, but it's like last year when he cried over George Floyd. To me, that, that was just to keep the Twitter mob off of him. It's, it's I, I call it ADT, it's, it's, or some kind of life insurance that everybody takes out on themselves to make sure the Twitter mob is on their side. There, there are certain things people have to do and have to pretend that I'm on this side of the issue and I'm, oh, oh my God, if there was anybody offended, I wanna make sure that, that I didn't do anything to offend them and I'm against anybody that offended anybody. And they're just ruining society. It, it drives me crazy. I, I don't, and maybe I just got thicker or more Don't you feel like that, skin. Jason? What? Don't you feel, don't you feel like you don't you don't want to say anything that offends anyone, do you? You 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 No, I don't care. You you don't want to say anything that'll get up get under somebody's skin, do you? No, I, I don't care. I, I'll say things that offend me. <laughs> I mean seriously. Mm. I, I people need to toughen up. I'm tough on myself. <laughs> how often y'all say I come on this show every day and talk about how fat I am and how I gotta fight gluttony. 
And, you know, I just people need to toughen up, man. Life is not meant to be easy. And iron sharpens iron. And, And this whole thing of living your whole life to make sure no one ever hears a statement that that might bother them because ain't nobody offended. They just bothered. And, and we're creating this life. Oh, my God, I was bothered. But Jason, what do you say to the comment of it's not about the intent? It's about the perception. What do you say hmm. to that? I like to live in reality. And so I really don't I don't care about the perception. And again, the perception of me across social media is awful. The reality? Talk to anybody that's ever, you know, ain't my ex-girlfriends or whatever. The reality awful. is something beautiful. <laughs> no, you said it right. I've talked to some of your ex-girlfriends. Awful. Some of the poor Jason, girls still in treatment. Yeah. But, but Jason, this is what I call, and again, you're going to love this. This is a Game of Thrones reference when it was still a good show. This is what I call doing the Ned Starks. You bend the knee. And they, what they do is, before this thing could even blow out and people start questioning, well, do you agree with what Brian Kelly says? You retroactively or you preemptively strike and you douse that fire. That's what they're doing. And in my view, if you're at ESPN, and me and you probably know this better than anyone, if a Chris Fowler or a Reese Davis, what, is, <laughs> what a funny joke, that's a real knee slapper. I don't think that they're actually worried about the social media crowd. They're probably worried about their supervisors and their bosses and their overlords that say, wait a minute, wait, we don't want to do this here. We don't want to joke about anything. Uh, I've had situations, I have no other uh, personalities at ESPN. They have tweeted out certain things that weren't in the handbook, that were not approved. They were made to take that stuff down. And that's just the way it goes. I, I, I think I told you this before. I remember in my last month or so at ESPN, I tweeted something or retweeted something from Thomas Sowell Within 10 minutes, I was told to take it down. That's just the reality. You live over there at ESPN and at certain media conglomerates. Let's move on to a topic you and I both tweeted about. Michael Irvin's debut on first take on Monday. I think some people thought I was joking, but I was dead serious. I thought it was amazing. I thought Michael Irvin did a tremendous job. I thought the chemistry between he and, and Stephen A. Smith is off the chains. Look, is it my particular style of talk TV? Is it loud and over the top? Yes. My particular style, probably no. Entertaining, though? Did, did Like when Michael Irvin, I don't know, at one point he stood in front of a board and the five reasons the Cowboys <laughs> would be contenders. That was an incredible performance. And, and it's like, to see, he, he put some real thought into it. He was clever. And then Stephen A came up and engaged with him on it. I, I thought it was fun. I, I, I thought it was a big upgrade, at least for one day. And I guess Michael's going to be on there every Monday. That's a big upgrade from what Stephen A and Max Kellerman were doing. This is NBC in the 90s on Thursday night. It is must-see TV. And for full disclosure, I am a Michael Irvin homer. He is at least one-third of the reason why I'm a Miami Hurricane fan to this day, and I'm a diehard. He, he has understood one thing about this medium and the role that he plays. His job is really not to be an analyst. It's not even to be a broadcaster. He's an entertainer. 
And he's an incredible blend of being egomaniacal and self-deprecating. Egomaniacal because he was an incredible Hall of Fame wide receiver and the stuff he did on the field. And he's self-deprecating because of the stuff that happened off the field. And he's always had a gift of gab, even going back to when he was a Miami Hurricane. And I remember one of the funniest lines I've ever heard from any athlete when you talked about the notorious White House. I'm sure which, and not the one on Pennsylvania Avenue. It's the one the Dallas Cowboys had right across the street from their practice Mm -hmm. field. And and Michael Irvin was asked to explain, what the hell were you guys doing? And the playmaker said, uh, we tried to do the wrong thing the right way. And I thought it was one of the funniest answers ever. So now Michael Irvin's new nickname is the first take maker. I have not watched that show in about seven, eight years, but every Monday now I'm right with you, Jason, I'm going to DVR that. And I believe it's come must see TV. And I don't know what's going to be better if the Cowboys win that previous game on Sunday, or if they lose, because there's a special magic that they have. It's not for everybody. And I believe it's a lot like ice cream. You love ice cream. We all love ice cream. You don't want ice cream after every meal. You don't want it every day. Once a week is perfect. And, and I have an idea, guys. Uh, I, I am not Rune Arledge, but I play one on Zoom. I was thinking about how do you spice up Monday night football? Because there really hasn't been that great personality. I thought John Gruden was pretty good. Jason Witten simply did not have the experience to take that job. Michael Irvin could be... Don Meredith 2.0, because he's a personality, he makes it fun, and in fact, I'd make Stephen A, it's Howard Cosell, and then bring back my guy Joe Tessitore, and now you're bringing back the three-booth, three-man magic of Monday Night Football, and I'd call it Michael's Night of Fun, because at that point, I don't care if two 0-10 teams are playing, I would stick around for those three and a half hours. Uh, Steve, you've made a heck of a suggestion Great idea. It needs to be refined and sculpted, though. And, and, and this is not criticism. It's just facts. Stephen A. Smith doesn't know enough about football to be anywhere near the Monday Night Football broadcast booth. He doesn't. But wait a minute. Just, he just doesn't. But Jason, did Howard Cosell, remember what Cosell's favorite line was? I never played the game. I, I mean, at the end I, of the day, football Here's is Stephen just a, a. Game. Smith's line as it relates to football. I've never watched the game. And Stephen A. Smith, Stephen A. Smith said at one point, hey, they should have kicked that field goal on third down because if they missed it, they could have retried it again on fourth down. That's how much he knows about football. I'm not trying to beat up on the guy. What he's first take, what he's doing, put him on the NBA show. Don't put him anywhere near Monday Night Football. There's such a massive audience that you have to reach. He and Michael Irvin together on that particular show would be a disaster. Michael Irvin on Monday Night Football, you're right. That could be something. It would be a big improvement over their Monday Night Football booth right now. I I, I like the guys that are on there. It's not a good Monday Night Football booth. I'm not even sure if it's better than the last one. I'm not even, and as much as I, I couldn't, Sean McDonough was fingernails on a chalkboard. The guy hates football. He talked John Gruden into hating football. All, all, that whole booth that they had with him, Lisa Salters, and John Gruden, that was all about the LGBT, BLM, the Alphabet Mafia. It was all about diversity and inclusion. It was a joke. Michael Irvin, and, and, and you gotta, there was years ago, Steve, I was probably one of uh, Michael Irvin's biggest critics. 
I used to call him the really? pipe maker. Uh, oh yeah, years ago when I used to call him the pipe maker. Oh my god! And then, and then at a Super Bowl, I got to spend time with Michael Irvin, and I was like, oh my god, this is a terrific human being. Is that yeah. before or after the booger sugar? No, I, look, I'm oh, being dead serious. Jimmy, Jimmy. Terrific human being. No, no, Jimmy. terrific human being. I'm saying, he is he flawed? Yes. So am I. Who amongst us ain't been flawed? I mean, I, I went over to the, of course, of course, I went to the White House. Who amongst us has not gone to the White House? <laughs> I've gone there, I went there. I, I, granted, I had a crack pipe in my pocket, <laughs> but I took the crack pipe out of my pocket and I put it in the trash right before I went in there. That's what any right human being would do. And take the crack pipe out of your pocket, put it in the trash before you go in the crack pipe. Then you go in the crack house. Who wouldn't do that? <laughs> and I did that on Monday Night Football, right before the game, right before the Super Bowl. Yeah, you know, Jason, I did do you not remember- know that was coming. Well, Jason, do you remember? I did not know uh, that was coming. Hold on, Steve. Let me say, I did not know that was coming. I want to finish my story on Michael Irvin, Jim. And so, hold on. Met him, and I'm just telling you, I fell in love with Michael Irvin. The man has a sincere belief in God. He's a good person. Is he flawed, struggle with some demons? Heck yes. But he is authentic. And what you see from him is authentic. That's the same reason why I can tolerate Stephen A. Smith. Because if you know him and have met him, the same way he is on camera, that's how he is off the camera. It's not an act. And so anybody being their authentic self, hats off to him. I can't do nothing but support him. Michael and Stephen A. I think have found something. And I agree with you. It's a once a week thing. uh, And it shouldn't be more than that. But, Steve, I also like your idea of Michael Irvin being a solution for Monday Night Football. Uh, Jim, and that was a hell of an impression. Now, Steve, go ahead. Well, a couple things about Michael Irvin. I was able to interview him 15 years ago for Canestime.com. I used to do a lot of stories on former players uh, that played what at the say, University of Miami. You did that for who? Canestime.com. Canes, C-A-N-E-S. Time, is that what no, no, what juice, stop. Oh, oh Jay, now oh. you're piling on. Okay. <laughs> and... I love Mike Irvin, but I'm sorry. I know. No, look, he's fair game. Look, he had a White House, but like Marion Barry, he got busted in a motel. Jimmy factually is right. I am not going to argue that point. But um, I was able to interview Michael Irvin through a teammate of his, Melvin Bratton, on the 87 national title team. They were on the same offense. I know Melly Mel. Yeah, and he gave me the best hour I think I've ever had. And part of his rehabilitation, in my view, and I spent the full 10 minutes on this, And one of the five-part chapters that I did was about the best damn sports show on Fox Sports. I don't know if you guys remember that. That's where he really began to rehabilitate his persona. Because he still had issues even after he retired where you thought, man, this is going to be a very sad story. And that show had John Sally, Tom Arnold, and a very young Chris Rose. I think it was like a two-hour ensemble show. And Michael just stood out. And then he ended up going to ESPN. Now, this is where I think Michael would not really work in the long term. He was very good on ESPN. I believe he was on their countdown show. And he made a joke about Tony Romo, about how for a Latin, he had good speed and they shouldn't be that fast. Again, like Brian Kelly, he made an off-the-cuff remark. And I think that was the end of his run at ESPN, basically. But when you look at a guy, I think him and Charles Barkley have figured it out. A lot of guys can talk X's and O's. A lot of guys can break down a play. 
But how many guys are you going to specifically see on TV and stop what you're doing and say, this guy's going to make me laugh, he's going to take my mind off the real world, and he's going to entertain me? I don't think anyone in football is better than the playmaker. I think you make a hell of a point. I think we're not going to get to the other topics because we've spent so much time uh, (laughs) talking about the playmaker. Excellent job, uh, Steve, as always. And Jim, could... I, I did enjoy that Michael Irvin impersonation. Could we get a little more of that before I uh, tell you about my good friends at Good Ranchers? Well, Jason, I, I would like to make a comment on what a lot of people say about me. A lot of people seem to think that I run around here and they think that I have ashy lips. I don't have ashy lips. My lips are just incredibly dehydrated. <laughs> You know what? I got a solution. If he improves his diet, he won't be dehydrated. And the best thing I could do to tell him to improve his diet, he needs to go see my friends at Good Ranchers. We got this fire new grill of ours out back. Uncle Jimmy, uh, by the way, the the guys, the CEOs of uh, Good Ranchers, they're going to be here next week. Uh, on Thursday, and I think we're going to cook out for him. So I hope... Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to be in town. You have those guys from Good Ranchers come and see me. I'm going to take them to the White House, and I'm going to show them how to have a good time. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show them how to do it the Playmaker way. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. So add a whole new meaning to the term hang out with the white girl. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about the great time we're going to have when the CEOs from Good Ranchers get here because we are going to cook some Good Ranchers meat out in that backyard. We got our grill set up. Jenna's done a wonderful job. I can't wait for those guys to get here. We're going to have steak. We're going to have chicken. We're going to have the lemon pepper chicken. We're going to have a great tasting meal. Nothing better than the organic chicken package to their cattlemen and family feast bundle. Everyone in your home will be able to enjoy a truly great meal from right here in America that's 100% farm raised right here in America. So stop waiting and go order now. If you subscribe, you'll get $20 off and free express shipping. Get steakhouse quality for less than $5 per meal. Go to goodranchers.com fearless to get $20 off and free express shipping. Good Ranchers, that good meat, That's why I'm slimming down. I'm eating lean meat. I'm eating healthy meat. I'm eating American farm-raised meat. It's doing wonders for me. It tastes great, and it's got my diet in order. It can do the same for you. That's GoodRanchers.com slash fearless. All right, welcome back. Time for Professor D. Professor. Delano Squires. Uh, you know what, Jim? Uh, Delano's starting to get real comfortable because he's starting to get real creative. His latest piece today uh, that's on The Blaze, I, it's got my highest recommendation. Uh, Delano's written a lot of great things, but this is his most creative thing. Uh, Delano... This could be called a fire starter. I, it, I just it, want to tell you, this could be, this is well, Delano's yeah. version of a fire starter. Let's keep this real, Dad. It really is. Uh, Delano, I, I, it's so inspiring because Delano 
is like a natural writer. He's not actually a trained writer. I don't think mm -hmm. he studied journalism or English in college. Uh, nope. His profession uh, hasn't been in the writing field, but uh, I, I saw some stuff Delano wrote for the Federalist and was like, damn, this brother, man, got some skills and reached out to him and, and I'm trying to uh, mentor Delano into being a public intellectual, but it's, it's like he's mentoring me. It's, it's I'm learning from Delano and, you know, somewhat I'm joking, but I just know when people get comfortable, they start getting real creative. So, 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 so you're saying Delano's getting like me. Yeah, they, they start getting real creative. Yeah, yeah. They're comfortable and they roll and they done figured it out. And it's like what I tell people about the reason to learn the rules is so you know when to break the rules. Mm. It's mm. not really about mm. staying between the white lines. It's like, no, I want to know the rules and then know how to effectively break them because that will make me different and unique from everybody else. And so when I read Delano's piece this morning, I was like, this brother's starting to break the rules. It's starting to feel good to him. Uh, <laughs> he start, wait, that boy's starting to feel himself. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like watching, if you've been to, I'm trying to think of what's one of the greatest concerts, Usher or Justin Timberlake. Yeah. You know, the second half of the show, they're actually better at the, the second half of the show after they kind of gotten into the groove. And, and so Delano, anyway, wrote uh, a piece that basically updates the Willie Lynch letter. And Jim, mm -hmm. I don't know if you, the Willie Lynch letter mm -hmm. is, is probably more of a myth because uh, th there is no actual proof that Willie Lynch actually existed. But Willie Lynch is this alleged slave owner back in the 1700s, 1800s that wrote a letter on how to make the perfect slave. And, and people, Farrakhan referenced it, I believe, in the 1990s at the Million Man March, and it kind of took on a life of its own and people started talking about it again. But there's actually no proof that it existed. And Delano has written a piece uh, that kind of like, it's the updated version. It's the 1986 version of the Willie Lynch letters uh, from a writer who uses the pseudonym Richard Snip. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and so Delano, anyway, tell us the point of your article today, why you wrote it, how you executed it, the whole nine. Sure. Um, recently I was, I was watching a, a scene from the movie Great Debaters and it was a scene where Denzel Washington, and, and for people who are not familiar with the movie, it talks about a debate team at a historically black college, you know, back in the early 1900s, who went on, in the movie, they went on to beat Harvard in a debate. Um, and Denzel Washington's in the lead role, and he's mentoring a number of students who want to participate in the debate team. So at one point, he's talking to them, he ends up talking to them about the Willie Lynch letter. And towards the end, he said that his goal and the goals of the, the goal of the professors on that campus is to help the students to find, take back, and keep their righteous mind. Because part of what Willie Lynch was doing, right, what the letter was supposed to do, is teach slave owners how to keep the slave's body and take their mind. Mm. And Denzel's part was again, find, take back, and keep your righteous mind. So 
I can't say how I came about, you know, finding this letter. But for the sake of argument, let's say I wrote it. Um, <laughs> the, the point of it, the point of it is the same thing. Because as I look on the, the landscape, particularly in black political discourse, and I'm going to be very specific when I'm, when I'm say, saying here, right? There are certain things that are so perplexing to me that the only way for me to explain them is that there is a, a spirit of delusion and mind control that has worked its way through the black body politic. And my goal in writing the letter is to wake people up to that, to get them to understand, hey, the things that you're saying, do you even understand why you're saying them? And maybe if I presented it in conspiracy theory, because oftentimes th those get a lot of traction, maybe people would, would listen to it. So I'll, I'll give a quick example. Last week, you know, we talked about it, Jason, and you know, the, the Texas law that would ban abortion after six weeks or when a, a, heart, a fetal heartbeat is detected. And the number of black elected officials, political pundits, um, cultural analysts who all, in, almost in unison, were talking about how terrible this law was and this attack on women and all this other stuff. And I, and I thought to myself, one, well, clearly they, they, they do believe in gender and that there's such things as male and female. But even more important than that, it was disheartening to see black folk arguing that a bill, a law that would lead to more black babies being born is a tool of white supremacy. And it wasn't just them. The people that I know in my real life, friends, family, guys at the barbershop, who when you hear them talk, you would think you were speaking to a, a second year uh, gender studies major at Wesleyan, right? Instead of the guys who, who claim to follow the teachings of King and, and Malcolm X and, and some follow the teachings of Farrakhan. And all of that is just, is so perplexing to me. And I, and I was trying to figure out, you know, how did we get here? And that's, that's really what I was trying to do with, with the letter. And, and it starts, the cardinal rule is that always and in everything, keep them, black folk, fixated on race. Rule number two, teach them to value our opinions and the our being white people our opinions, our beliefs, our actions more than their own. And if you can put, drive those two stakes in the ground, then you can get busy and, and do some real work. So the rest of the letter was just sort of recounting um, what Richard Snip was talking about at the time and mapping it onto the current state of our you know, p political and social uh, condition, particularly in, in the African-American community. It was... It's so cleverly done that I think for some people it may fly over their heads exactly. and like that it, it oh this this is real and I think that was the point in terms of you want it to seem so authentic and real and so cleverly done that they take it seriously but but you hammered on so many things and and you know your first, rule one and rule two are my biggest complaint about where we are as a group, as a people, what, what big tech and social media have done to us. We place so much value on what white people think about us and place almost no value on what we think about each other. And mm -hmm. I, I just look at it like, 
the number one example of it is just like, we are perfectly fine in all instances calling each other the N-word. And, and we play these little mental games. <laughs> it's a term of endearment when we say it. But that, that, that's my N-word. Right. But, but, but Jim, and having been in law enforcement and, and me having just lived a life when a disciple, a gangster disciple, a blood or a crip, mm-hmm. shoot somebody. What's the last mm-hmm. thing they say? I smoked that N-word. Mm-hmm. Are they using it as a term of endearment? It, or is it the exact same as what the Klan would say when they've hanged somebody? We just killed an N-word. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the exact same mentality. It, it's, it's, you know, Delano, I once got in trouble uh, not in trouble, but caused a bunch of controversy because I ca- I said there's a new KKK and we're it. That like, well, mm. we've replayed, the KKK just kicks back. <laughs> Y'all got this from here, handle it. And that's what this piece reads like to me. It's like, it's, it's basically a white Klansman saying, look, we're going to train black people to do our jobs and we're gonna make them the bigots and the destroyers of black people. And they'll never, because they're so fixated on race that anything someone with dark skin does, well, that's justifiable. When he killed that guy, you know, he deserved it. And, you know, that was a killing of endearment. Uh, That wasn't a real killing. (laughs) It was a rite of passage. (laughs) Yeah, literally. And and I just, anyway, D, help me out from there. So, so I, I address you know that specific um, scenario in in the letter, right? Or Richard Snip does, and um, <laughs> I talk about the need to keep them thinking that our opinions of them are more important than their opinions of themselves, and I, and I said, make them feel like cold stares from us, us being white people, are more damaging than hot lead from from their own, their own being black people. And that's, that's where we are today. So whether it's Amy Cooper or Walmart Karen or whatever the situation is, any situation in which um, a white person says something disparaging, and it could just be words, or even has a particular look, like the, like the Covington kids, and that didn't even really involve black people, but you could see how even the, the look of you know, uh, the, the Covington boys immediately goes to the front of the line when it comes to the, the issues that we as black people need, need to fight. So when Amy Cooper gets, you know, endless amounts of ink from Newsweek and the Times and all these appearances, you know, people who are involved in that situation on MSNBC and CNN, and there are, you know, a steady stream of, of toddlers and, and infants who are shot and killed in our cities, and we don't know any of their names, that's a problem to me. And part of what I would say is that, again, within black political discourse, we need a moral revolution. And obviously as a Christian, I, I see that as springing from a, 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 you know, a revolution of, of, of faith, right? In Jesus Christ. That's how, that's how I see it coming up. But there are other communities who are not practicing Christians who don't have some of the same statistics that we have like a sky-high murder rate. So 
part of part of my criticism, and I say this in, in the piece, and I stand by it, is that our ministers, our elected officials, the people that we see that supposedly are supposed to be leaders, are compromised. They're compromised because they have made politics the end all be all. That's why all they do is push voting. Because vote, us voting for them is a jobs program for them. It just keeps them in power. So th- their institution has outlived its usefulness, and now it is doing what all institutions do, which is to try to make itself, keep itself relevant. I also talked about how some of those leaders are morally compromised. As I said, um, there are guys, I'll, I'll, the per- first person that comes to mind when I think about this is Pastor Jamal Bryant, right, in Atlanta. It used to be in Baltimore. I can't think of a single man with half a brain who would want his wife to be spending 10 hours a day in close quarters with Jamal Bryant. But he is seen as some sort of black leader. He's at, he was at the, the March on Washington last year. You know, he used to be involved with the NAACP. These are people, and I, and I talked about it in the piece, they're warriors who won't fight, watchmen who are blind, and guard dogs who won't bark. Because the only thing they're out looking for is what white people are doing. They survey the landscape, and it doesn't matter what the domestic threats are, they have no interest in them. Their only job is to say, white people are doing something today, somewhere in this country, and we need to be on top of that. So part of the reason you see some of the things going on in our community, as I said, these precious children and infants, toddlers, I mean, young kids, there are by far more black kids under the age of 15 who are shot and killed in cities all across this country than there are unarmed black men shot and killed by the police, without a doubt. And what we need is, as I said, a moral revolution. We, we need to see images of some of those, those babies in their casket the same way we saw Emmett Till to, to shock the conscience. And, and uh, back then it was to, to wake up white folk. We need to do that same thing in, in our community. And the same, in the same respect, when, again, we were talking about abortion last week and even in this piece, the same way the abolitionists would use images the famous one is of, of the, the um, enslaved man who his back is to the camera. You see the scars on his back. Again, to shock the conscience. We need to see that when we're talking about abortion. It, it won't be pleasant. I guarantee you it won't be pleasant. But we need to see it so that people like Roland Martin and Mark Lamont Hill are not on their shows using euphemisms like uh, uh, reproductive rights and, and um, the ability to choose. And in my mind, I'm like, choose what? Say what it is. Be a man. Don't be snipped. Say what it is. Say, tell your readers, your audience, how an abortionist gets a baby out of a woman at 13 weeks. Tell them you need to pull the baby apart limb by limb and the last piece is to crush the skull and bring it out through the cervix. Tell them that. And then have somebody on on the show and you debate them and you tell them why it is in the interest of black folk for fewer of our children to be born. That's, that's what I want to see. And it's not that I dislike these people. I just dislike what they're doing. And I would, leave them, I would leave them alone once, I will leave them alone once they stop. But they don't show any signs of letting up, and neither do I. So Richard Snip had to talk to them. <laughs> Delano, one of the points, and particularly as it relates to abortion, and, and we have, as black men and as black people, have bought into a notion that we're not responsible for anything, 
nor mm -hmm. do we want responsibility for anything. And so when I hear, when you talk about the, your friends at the barbershop or people in their family and why they're so pro-abortion is because anything that makes us less responsible, we've been trained to think is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> I don't have to wear a condom. I don't have to find a woman that I actually love and want to spend my life with and create a child with her. I can just randomly go out and have kids. And you know what? It's on the woman. It's her body. It's her choice. It's not me. If she wants right. to keep that baby, that's on her. Right. And I don't, you know, I don't have to pay child support. I only have to see the baby because she made that choice. And mm. again, the the actual masculine man actually craves responsibility mm. and wants to be responsible for his creation mm -hmm. and his woman and his family. I, I take a lot of pride in how good I've been able to take care of my parents. My dad mm -hmm. has passed, my mom is still living. I take a lot of pride in things I've been able to do for my family. I want that responsibility. I see a lot of people that have been fixated in them. <laughs> responsibility is for white people. Their actions matter. Mine don't. And, and then we're also, as cowards, we're, and women, black women, y'all be responsible. Stacey Abrams, take your little chubby ass and you're going to lead us up out of this. Uh, I, <laughs> I just... Good luck with that. And I know I'm overweight, yeah. too, and I got no right to talk about uh, Stacey Abrams, but I'm just sorry. Good luck. If you think Stacey Abrams is leading us out of anything, you're, you're crazy. Give her an inhaler. She can... <laughs> I'm sure she can take a couple of... <laughs> Follow me! <laughs> this way! <laughs> but, Harry but Jason, Blubman. you... <laughs> <laughs> You 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 absolutely right. The underground restaurant, the freedom. <laughs> She's gonna take us to the underground restaurant, the freedom. She, she worked for the railroad, <laughs> the underground railroad. <laughs> and I, look, I know I'm a hypocrite, but I'm just sorry. I'm not. At least I ain't lying to kick it. I told, I got a weight problem. I'm trying to work on it, but you can't wait to eat, can you? <laughs> Uncle Jimmy done. Hey, Delano, you're great. We got to go. We're short for time today. Okay. Awesome piece. Thank you. Uh, stuff as always, D. Sorry appreciate for dirtying it up with these jokes. People are going to be so mad at me. <laughs> but this Jason Whitlock, what you expect? She's on the underground restaurant, the Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> chain, chain, chain. <laughs> Working on the chain. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't you know? Who? <laughs> 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 oh, I'm in trouble. I'm, in, I'm sorry. Harry Blubberman. <laughs> Harry Blubberman is what I'm called. And I know people don't, oh, guys, queen, you go, girl. Mm -hmm. Y'all need to stop it. All right, youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. I'm in trouble. What a. Now I'm about to go to my harmony segment. I got to get back right with God while we take this little break. I see your Bible smoking, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> harmony. <laughs> I just want 
Welcome back. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. All right, hard act to follow Delano Squires. Professor D did a great job, but I think I've got just the guys to do it. Takes three guys to replace Delano. I've got the guys from Cross Politic. Uh, they have a successful podcast out of Idaho. They're visiting here in Middle Tennessee. They're hosting a conference. Uh, Dave Shannon, Toby Sumter, and Gabriel Wrench. Uh, they're here in Middle Tennessee, or in Nashville and in Middle Tennessee. They got a conference about the politics of sex, but I want to start with someone, Gabriel, I'll throw it to you, tell our viewers, listeners, about Cross Politic and what you three guys try to do with your podcast. Yeah, we started Cross Politic back in 2016, um, largely because we believe the church had disconnected the Bible from politics and the church was not doing a good job discipling its, um, its uh, you know, churchgoers on how to think about politics and how to process it. I mean, you had for literally at least, you know, I was born in 79 and for about 40 years of my lifetime, you had that disconnect. And so what had happened over those 40 years, well, you would get a good gospel message on Sunday morning, but then you would get kind of your political pastor would be like Rush Limbaugh or Glenn Beck throughout the week. And I think it's created the kind of conservatism that we've had now where we've disconnected the Bible from politics. Mm, that is certainly uh, something I believe. Toby, you're a pastor. Yes, sir. I'm gonna call you Pastor Toby, like Pastor Bobby. And show Pat a little respect. Uh, show a little respect. Appreciate it. Why, how did you three guys come together to do cross politics? Why you yeah. three? Well, Gabe, grabbed me for coffee and uh, one time and just he's a deacon in the church and and said pastor toby i'm thinking about doing a, a podcast i don't even think i knew what a podcast was but i said sure i don't know <laughs> but he said he wanted to talk about politics and he wanted uh us to talk about what the bible had to say about what's going on in the public square um very quickly we i realized we realized that we didn't have the technical chops to pull it off very well, and we really wanted something that was gonna be very conversational. Community. Our, yeah. our style is very free-flowing yeah. conversation, and we wanted a third guy. We went to Chocolate Knox, David Shannon, uh, once. He's got a studio, he's a producer, of, uh, makes uh, television Director, movies, yeah. music. Uh, we, we thought at the very least he could help us with the tech side, and at the same time we were kind of trying to haul him in and see if he would, he would help us be, be part of the conversation. It took us months and, well, to, get, and, to convince you. Well, and they, they did it real dirty. So <laughs> first time Gabe asked me, and I said no without even hesitation. And then the second time they pulled a move you don't do with black people. They pulled you into the pastor's office. <laughs> and they set me down. They said, hey, man, I just want to talk to you for a little bit. And you pull into the pastor's office. This is one of those moments where it's like, okay, am I going to get communion on Sunday if I say no to whatever pastor say? <laughs> am I going to have a little, you know, shorter crown in heaven? Am I going to my mansion going to lose a few rooms? So you just don't do that. And so they, they put the pressure on me right then and there. And Pastor told me at the time he used to wear a collar. So that's really high, high pressure to come <laughs> in his office and say no to the pastor at that point. He and felt I, the work of the no spirit to, quick, though. Yeah, I, Gabe, I say yeah. no to all the time, but Pastor Toby was a little harder to... <laughs> uh, Dave, let me ask you this question, because yeah. the, these guys had me on cross politic yeah. six months ago, I can't remember when, yeah. and when I showed up, because it was a podcast, I think I got an email, and they tell me they're from Idaho, and I'm like, yeah, I'll do it, 
And then when I, I get on the Zoom or whatever, however we did it, and I see this black dude, I'm like, oh, they, they got black people in Idaho? <laughs> <laughs> there, there's, there's three, a, three, four? Oh, they got, they got at least he's nine. Got, he's got, he's got, <laughs> got seven kids and a wife. Right. Right. We're working right. on the population. Not, <laughs> uh-huh. Trying to change the population yeah. up there, me and my wife alone. Mm-hmm. So no, there's about 250 in my town. We all know each other, hang out on Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> 250 is like, you got 10% of that. That's right. Let me just say, between the four of us, we have 14 kids. Yes, sir. And I have yeah. none. Oh, so. Oh. Hey, man, okay. we're taking care of you. Me and my family yeah, got you we, covered. We got your back, yeah. You got four. Yes, you got. You guys are full of multiplying yeah. in yes, Idaho. Nothing else to do in Idaho, I guess. <laughs> no, no, there's a lot to do there. It's cold in the winter. <laughs> All right, so who wants to tell me about the conference you guys are doing, the politics of sex? What's it about, and why here in Nashville, Tennessee? Well, we, we uh, the, the Nashville is just a centrally located to the East Coast and middle of the country. We wanted to reach as many people as possible. We did a conference here last year in yeah. Franklin. It was uh, successful, and um, so we wanted to come back. Uh, and politics of sex, because uh, we are in the middle of a huge war, and um, everything um, the LGBT jihad is against us. And, um, and I think a lot of Christians feel helpless. They don't know what to do. Um, and everybody, you know, we know we're supposed to love our neighbor, love our enemies. And then at the same time, we got our jobs on the line. Our kids are being, um, right. uh, you know, shoveled all this propaganda. All of us are all day long. And so we wanted to go just right up the middle and say, actually, we were created in the image of God, male and female. We were created to marry, to bear children, to raise them up in the Lord. And, um, and we want to just address that straight on and recognize that actually when, when we do the thing that we were made to do, when we embrace the fact that I am male, I'm a man made in the image of God, I'm a female, I'm a woman made in the image of God, and I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a father, I'm a mother. Um, when we do the thing that God made us to do, it's powerful. It changes and, the world. And, and we, it's not unrelated to what's happened in our country. Right. Our, our whole country is built on a concept of covenant. Uh, there, there's covenants. God makes covenants with us through his son, Jesus. That's how we are made right with him. And then we make covenants with one another. The covenant of marriage is one of those. Uh, nations are covenants. Our, our, our country, you might know this. Uh, the Fine covenants, promises. Covenant is an agreement between two or more persons with blessings and curses. Right. So if you keep your end of the bargain, if you keep your covenant uh, and you, to the promises you make, then there's blessings in that. But if you break those promises, if you break covenant, there's curses, there's ramifications for that. And um, the, the uh, King George, when the American colonists were rebelling, actually called the American War for Independence the Presbyterian Revolt. That's right. And the reason for that was um, because um, a lot of these Presbyterians moved over from Scotland and they were known as covenanters, which meant that they believed that nations were in covenant. The nations were covenant. And King George was a covenant breaker. And King George yeah. was breaking his covenant. Yeah. They had given charters to the colonies and said, this is how you can function as a colony. And then Parliament started taxing them and that was breaking the covenant. Uh, there's no, it's no accident that we live in an era with so many broken marriage covenants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we live in this mess of a political world. Yeah. Our, our country is breaking its constitutional covenant. And that's rooted in the fact that there have been so many men who have broken covenant with their wives and that's their kids. Right. 
as you are looking at the situation right now, we know that we need to be engaged, we know that we need to be fighting, and that we don't necessarily know how and what the tools are to fight with. And it's because our metaphysics are broken. One of the things that I think about with this conference is, it's kind of our Vince Lombardi training camp. This is a football. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right? We, this, this is a man. This has what God designed a man to do, how to be, how to function. This is a woman. God actually has a structural design and makeup of what a woman is. Um, these are children. This is who you are in relationship to each other because of that. And this is a blessing that comes from that. One of the things that really interesting in, in Titus, we were talking about this this morning. In Titus, Paul is telling, Timothy, uh, telling Titus to uh, plant elders in a place where are wild beasts and liars. That's the people that he's dealing with. Island of Crete. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so those are the people, and that's the structure that he's dealing with. And he's like, I want you to plant elders there, and I want you to tell the old men to be dignified, be holy, act a particular way. I want you to tell the younger men to do the same thing, and I want you to tell the wives, to, uh, the older women, to teach the younger women to be good wives and to take care of their children. And he goes through this list of basically the structure of the family, parents, grandparents, children, and, and then he says, so that this will put them to shame. Jason, we're missing out. The secret weapon to win this war is built inside of that same layout that, that Paul is given Titus as he's setting up the church in the family. Yeah. That right there is like, uh, you have a saying that the family is a nuclear bomb, right? Yeah. It goes up, that is our superpower. Husbands loving their wives and protecting them like Christ has protected the church and then training them, uh, training the wives to love their children. There's a, I love this term, it's a term, it's called diapers, dishes, and dominion. Some of the things that we take for granted, that we look past as massive cultural changing weapons is the beauty of a mom that changes the diapers on a daily basis and the mundane things of, of her children, who are loving them with the care and admonition of the Lord, who are preparing meals for their family so that the kids' allegiances and ties to good tasting food is to a joyful family that choose to honor God in their marriage relationship. And we take some of these things for granted when those things are the, the secret weapon that makes the world a shame. One of the things the world wants to do right now is to say, is to mar the beautiful image of women. Right, mm -hmm. so you see this inside of um, feminism. Uh, Nas, uh, little little Nas, little nasty X. Yeah, that's him. Um, yeah, that guy, nasty X rated. That that right there, that that is blackface for women. Mm -hmm. He did is blackface for women. They want to mar the beautiful image of a woman. G Gabe, let me ask you this, just to get you in. I, some people listening to this, and and if Gabe, if you're not the per perfect person to answer this pass it on, but some people listen to this and be like, look what we lock up there with them sexist pigs. <laughs> they want it to be 1850 all over again. They want it to be 1910 all over again. Y'all sexist. Are we? A, a society, it's inescapable that families build societies. It's not individuals. It's not, um, I mean, homosexuality is a fruitless 
act in society. Homosexuality kills society. You can't have a society without the family. And you know, one of the problems that have happened over the years, we've, we've bought into lies of feminism, we bought into lies of, of critical race theory, we bought into all these lies, and the ultimate uh, attack, that they're, they're ultimately attacking the family, the nuclear family. Feminism, critical race theory said, you know, you know what was it, the Smithsonian said, I'm uh, Showing up on time was Six racist. Months. Well, and the, and the Protestant work ethic's racist and the nuclear family's racist. And, um, and we've allowed that to be, come under, under attack. And men, particularly, have abandoned their families and not defended their families and protected their families. And, and, and one of the hardest things to do is to raise kids over 18 years. But that's what changes the world. God, God actually made it very easy for the Christian faith to take, take over the world. All you have to do is raise faithful kids to become Christians, to be faithful uh, employer, uh, employers, to be faithful business owners. And over, it's just a math problem. The, the secular worldview is fruitless. You see this in homosexuality. Kill their babies. They kill their babies. Abortion rates are high. Um, you know, uh, uh, the liberal household, I think, bears 1.8 children, um, which is a losing demographical number. Right. Uh, and so over all, all Christians have to do is be faithful, have kids, raise them in all the fear of the Lord and grow them up to be faithful Christians. But instead, what we do is in this last 40 years, we've raised them, given over to public education and let the world raise our kids. And we've lost, uh, you know, a generation, two generations, three generations over the last years. And that's why we're in this mess is because the church has lost the vision of what it means to be a Christian community in the midst of darkness. Jason, I'll add to this is um, it's not misogynist to celebrate what God made you for. 100%. This is a football. <laughs> yeah, this is glory. That's right. And, and the lie, of course, has been said, if you, don't, if you don't think that a woman can do exactly what a man does or be exactly like a man, then you're a misogynist. No, I would actually say that's misogyny, to compare a woman to a man. These, these are both human, both bear the image of God equally. That is 100% clear in scripture. But, God, but God's glory is reflected in us in different ways. And when you celebrate that glory, when you celebrate the particular glory that God made a woman for, and you say, that's your glory, that's your power, that's the place where you shine, that's where you make the biggest impact in this world, that's not misogynist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how you, that's, that's celebrating your superpower. That's your superpower. G.K. Chesterton said, um, only a fool compares the sun and the moon and thinks that one's better than the other. That's what a fool does. Yeah. But God gave men and women. We want to cut with the grain in how God created us. So what do you say? And I'm just playing devil's advocate because anybody that watches this show knows I agree with everything you're saying. Uh, what do you say to the people that are like, well, you don't want women to work. You don't want women uh, to be independent and be able to take care of themselves. Can I, can I, you only I want, pick you. Yeah. <laughs> my wife is raising seven of my kids right now. And if she heard somebody say that, she would flip out on them. What do you think I do every day? What do you mean you don't want me to work? I work harder than all y'all. I sleep less than everybody here. Mm-hmm. You think raising kids is easy? I, if I tried to... It's the hardest, if one I, of the hardest jobs on earth. <laughs> absolutely, but if I tried to economically put uh, something together to show the value of my wife as it relates to what she brings the family, I can't afford what she brings me. Mm-hmm. 
And so when they talk about you don't want a woman to work, she is absolutely insulted by that because what they are saying is that what she's doing, intending to the souls of the people's ears that she grew in her womb, is not working. Eternal impact. She grows ears. What do you mean I don't work? (laughs) You know what I mean? And so they're missing the beauty and they're degrading the value of what my wife brings to our family by saying something like that. And she works so good, Jason, that she brings in money outside of the things she does for us. She creates another form of economics, an ecosystem in our community that I could never do. And this is what I mean by getting to what is it and what is it for, the metaphysics of a human being, which is what the whole conference is about. When Adam had to go and take dominion of the world, Adam was helpless in trying to do that without Eve. And when God gave him, he gave him a God, put him in a garden eastward in Eden, and he gave him another garden, Eve. And that garden in Eve was the thing that was going to help him make the rest of the world like the garden that he was in. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, women have believed the lie that all the glory, that all the impact that you can have is outside of the house. When that, that's like the biggest lie that women, that modern feminism has, has instructed. What's, what's the most potent thing in all of creation? It's a human being. That's right. And there's only one kind of human being that makes other human beings. My wife, Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) Baby, you do it, girl. (laughs) But but that's the the thing is, it's like, I mean, um, that's the the powerhouse. God put his image in people. And, And to say that a woman who then freely gives herself to, to one man for her whole life, who then, then makes a home for him and for his children, to say that that's demeaning is to completely get it upside down and backwards. You, you're gonna go work for another man, mm. in another company, oh. something that's not gonna last forever? Human beings bear the image of God. They are immortals. Amen. They will live forever. The question is where they're gonna live forever. Whether they're gonna live forever in, with Christ in glory or whether they're gonna live forever in, in hell. There's only, there's only two destinations, but they're immortals. They're going to live forever. The stakes are high. And, and to say, uh, you know, you're, you're saying that she can't be as good as, or she can't do, no, that's not the point. The point is, what are we aiming for? We're aiming for glory. We're aiming for the Amen. highest potential. What's the highest potential? Making people who will live forever, and I, I mean like shaping them. And, and I think, you know, what David was getting at a minute ago is the, 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 the joy of, of a house. This mm-hmm. is part of what we're trying to get at too with the politics of sex is Amen. scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And that doesn't just mean, you know, going to church on Sunday and getting a, a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it means the joy of walking with the Lord all day long, walking with your wife, the joy of, of a fruitful marriage bed, the joy of your children around your table, the joy of your grandkids. Um, that, mm-hmm. that's, that community, that fellowship, that covenant life is full of joy. I love being home with my kids. Amen. Yep. I, I, I love, like, they're hilarious. They're funny. They challenge me. They ask me good questions. We love being around each other. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of potent joy creates loyalty and trust. Mm-hmm. And you know what you do with that? You build civilization. That's right. That's right. And, and one, one kind of side point to this is, you know, David's wife is going to have a far greater economic impact than David will have. That's right. Because <laughs> That's right. He's, he, she's raising his boys. 
And instead of, let's say Dave can make $50,000 a year. You're helping a little bit? Uh, you're helping, you're helping. I know, I know. I I'm not the ears or the not, eyes, but. You, are, know. you aren't a lazy dad. Okay, thank but you. But let's, let's say David makes $50,000 a year and she's raising four boys that are going to make $50,000 a year. Right. You know, I mean, just, just by that alone. Somebody's saying, what about the girls? They're not going to make any money? Oh, they're going to make oh, even that, more. That's even the more. point. That's the point. So They're making even more. And it's not, let's put it. They make it, the ears, Jason. Uh, <laughs> they make ears. And he, I'm not just being funny, but I'm, I'm being serious. Define that, though, when you say they make the ears. Explain that. Well, this is what Pastor Tubbs said. They have this right? magic thing <laughs> inside they have this, of them. They have this oven. And it makes people. Adam was insufficient in taking dominion because he could not make, he could not replenish the rest of the earth in the same way that God had replenish the garden. He needed a wife in order to reduplicate himself over again. And, and that's why in guarding Eve, Adam was supposed, in guarding protecting Eve, he was learning how to cultivate and guard and protect the garden. His failure was not guarding protecting Eve because she was the thing that was going to populate the rest of the world with more and more of Adam and Eve's, right? And so um, when I say that, sh- what were you gonna say? I was gonna jump in and say, and, and don't, don't hear us wrong, like we want our daughters educated to the highest. 100%. 100%. We're, and Absolutely. I, and, and they're gonna, before they're married, if, in maybe a few years, many, I don't know, they're gonna, they'll be hard workers, um, they're gonna be, they're, they're like CEOs. That's how I think about my wife. She's a CEO of my company. Like, and, and I want my daughters to be educated like that as well, to be CEOs of their, com- their home right. companies. And that can include all kinds of um, extra, you know, uh, Proverbs 31 is a beautiful text exactly. about a, a wise, virtuous woman who she's buying property, she's up she's in the middle the of the house, night, yeah. she's, she's making food, she's running a household, she's got servants, she's got, she, you know, she's a queen. And that's, and that's the point is like, when you're, when you're running um, that kind of powerhouse of a family, that's not a little thing, that's not a low thing at all, that's a glorious thing. Yeah. What do you say, there are women that may be watching this or dads or brothers or whoever said, what about the woman that doesn't want to be married? What, what's her plight in your worldview? Well, I would, I would want to gently come alongside her and say, it's one thing for God not to give you a husband for some providential reason or whatever, that's, in, that's God's business. But I would, not, I would want to encourage them to say, see, um, he, was, he referenced Titus earlier, the older women are to teach the younger women what? To be homemakers, to be wives and daughters. And so in the church, I would want a woman like that to be discipled graciously, taught that, hey, if it's, if it's in God's plan, you should be wanting to be a wife and a mother. Now, sometimes God doesn't give a woman children. Sometimes, and I would say the, the same goal though should be see the powerhouse of the home. Make a home that is fruitful in every way. Mm-hmm. Make, a, make a home that is a delight to be in a, 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 and welcome people. Yep. Practice hospitality. Um, there are orphans that need homes, that, uh, that need a mom, whether a foster mom or an adopted mom or just a temporary mom. Um, that there's just recognizing that people are the most valuable resource in the universe, I think, and that homes are places where people are being cultivated. Their their souls are being shaped. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. And that would be the thing that I want to encourage them in. And the the new thing that's replacing that home has been government education. Right. They are now getting to the place where they, we were just talking to, was it Carol Swain we were talking to? And she had said they're, 
They're trying to make sure less homework goes out so that parents don't see what they're actually Do discipling their kids into on a daily basis. Yeah. The new place where that's being cultivated is in government education, and that's why we're, we're losing our kids. And when, well, the, when we, the home doesn't function, somebody's gonna, the state takes over. And, and we're sitting in, the, in, the, in, in that gaping hole as we, we, we drop, we abdicated. We didn't see the potency of, of uh, the home, and so the states jumped in. M- moms, moms went out to work, and we got daycare, we got public education. Over 80% of Christian kids are losing their faith by their freshman year in college. That's a losing number. Sexual Gnosticism. Yeah. What, so who, who can tell me what that it's is? Not. Yeah, that's, so, <laughs> um, there is permeating in our culture right now that this idea that if I could, if I have certain information, then that information that I have has transformed me. And I can be or do whatever it is that I want to do based on the knowledge that I have about myself. Vody has talked about this a little bit. Vody Bachman has talked about this ethnic Gnosticism. Um, basically special revelation that no one else has that I have that's created a reality that doesn't exist. And we're seeing right now, this kind of goes back to metaphysics too, we're seeing right now, um, if a person has a belief about how they might feel, even though their biology isn't saying that, then how they feel is really the true thing, and their biology isn't. And so what this is... So a man who thinks... uh, Right. It's a woman trapped inside of a man's body is right. Gnosticism. 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 Because Gnosticism is this ancient heresy that basically said that the highest truth, the highest reality is this secret knowledge, this mysterious knowledge. And now we've just got it inside ourselves. And, and so some dude will be like, hey, I feel like a woman. That's the, that's the real truth. Right. Even though his biology is proclaiming to him that God made him a man. Yep. Yep. And so that reality is, is something that we need to, we're thinking, um, and a, a lot, and it's not just in, in sexual narcissism, it's, it's really, we have a confusion of what a thing is and what it's for. And so because of that, we are misusing almost everything we're coming in contact with, mainly the number one resource, human beings. We, if we don't know what a, a man is, then we don't know how to use him properly. If we don't know what a woman is, we don't know how to use it properly. And people are creating their own definitions he, him, they, her, it, us, they, they. <laughs> right? What is that? And so uh, I think it was last week I told a young lady I was Denzel Washington. Right. So that was Gnosticism. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. It's exactly. a form of it. It's a form of it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so. And, well, and, and it's Gnosticism built on a relativistic premise. Yeah, postmodernism. Postmodern relativistic premise, which true means. True for you, was true for me, was yeah. not true for me, not true for you. In order for Gnosticism to survive, it had to have a nice 40, or probably longer than that, 40 year run of postmodernism where truth was um, not truth anymore. So literally, Definitely sta- in that time. well, yeah, I mean, literally people will say, sta- I remember being on the campus witnessing and people would say statements like, I don't believe in truth. And I remember as an evangelist, I was like, okay, I don't know whether to, to deal with their thinking because <laughs> they just made a statement that they should have said, like that logically doesn't fit or to deal with the statement itself, right? Like which one is broken? Which one is more broken? Because they were too comfortable saying there's so, no such thing as truth. Well, except for that statement, maybe? Is that statement true? Yeah. And so, yeah. Let, let me ask this, because we're running out. 
Vody Bachman, you guys got him coming to Nashville. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big get. What's he going to be talking about? What's what, what's he going to be doing at your conference? One of our favorite things when we do our conferences is um, working with our friends and speakers and um, uh, sign, assigning them a title that is a little angular. We take pride in it. We know he can hit it out of the park and put him in a lane that he can hit out of the park and kind of even a, a uh, you know, a next level lane that he doesn't even know is there. So um, <laughs> he doesn't even we, know. We, we, we assigned Vody. Uh, his topic is critical sex theory: how to keep Marx and Freud out of your bedroom. And Marx and Freud are in our bedrooms. Oh, they oh, yeah. are. Hundred percent. Yes, they are. And, and, <laughs> they and, need to get out. <laughs> And so, I've got popcorn crumbs in my bedroom. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> you got capitalism in your bedroom. <laughs> crackers, broken crackers. Might even find a chicken bone underneath my bed. You just never. <laughs> uh, but how is Marks? How are they in our bedroom? All, all this. Layers. I mean, criti- So the whole idea is apply critical theory. How, how is it? How is it impacted um, our our sex lives? Well, Marks taught us that everything is material and everything is a power play, right? Mm-hmm. And Freud said everything is fundamentally sexual. Everything's this sexual urge. Everything it drives the world. And, and I think this is why now everyone, you know, how do you identify? Everybody's identifying as their sexual orientation. Now, we're made male and female. We're made to orient to the world in a particular way. But, you know, that's not your fundamental identity. Right. Uh, and, and then if you add that power play stuff to it, I mean, that's what they're playing with us. They're this, doing this, this critical theory where they're saying, if you don't affirm this trans, trans thing, if you don't affirm this LGBT thing or whatever, like, you are the problem. And that's why I'm white supremacist, apparently. I knew it. Just by, by virtue of, you know, the color of my skin. Um, because if I am not empowering these minorities, these sexual minorities, then I'm in their way. I'm not, I'm not letting them um, be really human. So that's Freud and Marx. They got married. I don't know. <laughs> and they got into your bedroom. And, and this is what drives promiscuity. This worldview is what drives promiscuity yeah. in the porn culture. Right. It's all power and it's all material. Yeah. Well, I'll just, we'll close on this note. I don't know if you've ever heard me say this, Toby, but what you're basically talking about is a thing that I describe and talk about all the time, the alphabet mafia. BLM, LGBTQ+, Right. there's a marriage between Mm -hmm. these two groups. I think that's Marx and Freud. Yes, sir. Yeah. I call it the alphabet mafia. I'm going to use that. Yeah. I'm trying to make it popular. The alphabet mafia. Let's use it. Hashtag. Uh, hashtag. <laughs> this was awesome. Uh, the the conference is on Friday and Saturday? or Thursday, no. Friday. It st- kicks off Thursday night with beer and psalms, man. Beer? Yes, and sir. And psalms. Hold on. Bro, you didn't even get to talk about that. I know, I know. We're some rowdy Christians. Yeah. Some who? Rowdy Christians. Rowdy Christians. Yes, sir. Rowdy Presbyterians. Rowdy Presbyterians drink. Y'all like Catholics then, I guess. No. (laughs) 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 Well, thank you, guys. All right, welcome back. Let's end today's show with a fire. I had some thoughts yesterday 
that I want to pass on in, uh, with this ending fire starter. Our purpose in life and cultural norms are being redefined with little resistance and even less attention. The actor Michael K. Williams died Monday of a drug overdose. The NAACP Twitter feed wished that Williams rest in power. Rest in power is a new cultural norm being imposed by social media apps. It's no longer solely customary to wish the dead a restful peace. We now hope they attain power. Traditional RIP is now RIP. We think this change is insignificant. We think it's progress, a sign of an awakening to the limitations of peace and the righteousness of power. Only a fool would want peace when power is attainable. Peace is spiritual. Power is tangible. Rest in peace is the Latin phrase, rescuat in pace. It was found on a tombstone as early as the fifth century. It was a way for religious people to wish the dead eternal rest in heaven. By the 18th century and the foundation of America, rest in peace became ubiquitous within Western civilization. Christians adopted the turn of phrase and engraved it on nearly every tombstone. It reflected our values. We thought our purpose was to live a life that would lead us to rest peacefully with God. That purpose caused us to make many sacrifices in service to our fellow man. That purpose is at the root of American progress, the freeing of slaves, the suffrage of women, the destruction of Jim Crow, the adoption of child labor laws. The list is endless. Rest in peace meant and means far more than most people imagine. So does rest in power. It's the moving of goalposts. It's a redefinition of our life purpose. Pleasing God is no longer our goal. Acquiring power is our purpose. The phrase power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely is credited to British politician Lord Baron Acton in 1887. The truth is a British prime minister, William Pitt, coined the sentiment in 1770 in a speech to the UK House of Lords. He said, unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it. When Lord Acton tweaked it, he added this conclusion. Great men are almost always bad men. Let me translate that for you. Power corrupts. The people who pursue power are almost always bad people. Rest in power inspires people to pursue power. Rest in peace inspires people to pursue God. I can hear my critics screaming that I'm making too much of a casual turn of phrase. I would agree with my critics. If every Christian norm in American society wasn't under attack or hasn't already been tweaked to meet secular norms. Merry Xmas, everyone. But I don't want to digress. How do you rest in power? What does that look like? What does it mean? I've rested peacefully. I've rested blissfully. I've rested in tranquility. Power? George Floyd, rest in power. 
He has far more power in death than life. In life, he was a drug addict, a porn actor, a violent criminal, an irresponsible father. I'm sure he was at one time a well-intentioned person, but he made a mess of his life. He found no peace or power while alive. He ascended to martyrdom and attained great power. Dying at the knee of a white man granted George Floyd power. In death, he won America's new game of life. Power is our new obsession. Power by any means necessary. No wonder we're ruled by lies and deceit. The pursuit of peace with God requires reverence and obedience to truth. The pursuit of power requires reverence and obedience to falsehoods. RIP America, the death of our Judeo-Christian culture has been greatly exacerbated. All right, that's it and that's all. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye.